0: 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 through 13. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up and being a follower of one of us over against the other. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that is without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. We are honored. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Paul is addressing something that almost never happens. People fighting in church. (laughs) Okay. Tough crowd on a holiday. Okay. And he uses uh, the divisions along personalities. Apollos, Peter, Paul... And so Paul begins to say, this isn't really about Paul and Peter and Apollos. It is not who you have uh, placed your earthly allegiance with because the gospel is not about Paul or Apollos. It's about Jesus. Pride creates division, Paul is saying here. Pride invites competition and comparison. That's what he says in verse 6. Do not go beyond what is written, then you will not be puffed up or proud in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And then he tears into them. He says, really, what are you proud about? What do you have that you did not receive? The last people on earth who should be proud are Christians. Because how do you get proud about the Son of God needing to die for you? How do you get proud over grace you never deserved in the first place? What's the competition over? Everything you have or will have is a gift from God. Please tell me what you're proud of, Paul is saying. Then Paul does something startling. He gets sarcastic. I've been, in 35 years of preaching, I think I've been sarcastic twice. But this is Paul. This is Paul. Paul. He says, listen to the sarcasm, it's dripping. He says, you already reign in God's kingdom. How we apostles would like to reach the heights you have reached. Then Paul begins direct comparisons between the Corinthians and the the apostles. He compares what's going on in the church to a Roman victory parade called a triumph. Whenever Rome won a war, they would have what is called a triumph. It was a huge victory parade right through the center of Rome. Thousands and thousands of people would come. And in this parade, they would have the army come first, then all the loot and stuff they had, and at the end, they would have captured prisoners and captured slaves. And what Paul is telling them is, you Corinthians, see yourselves at the head of the parade in this victorious army. We apostles, by contrast, Are at the end of the procession, the group of captured slaves who, after the parade, will die in the Colosseum. They are that kind of spectacle, Paul says. They, the apostles to the world. He says, how we wish we were conquering heroes like you guys in Corinth. Next, Paul compares attitudes. You are wise, but we apostles are foolish. We wish we could be as smart as you are. We are weak. But you Corinthians are strong. Oh, that we had your spiritual power. We're just apostles. You are honored, but we are dishonored. Oh, that we are as well thought of as you. The sarcasm is dripping. Then Paul describes the actual conditions of the apostles. We apostles go hungry and thirsty. We apostles are in rags, brutally treated, homeless. We work with our hands for the little we have. We are poor, not rich like you. Gee, we wish we were spiritual like you. All we do is stuff like blessing those who curse us, endure persecution faithfully, answer with kind words those who slander us. We are treated like the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. All we do is what Jesus taught us to do. Unlike you, all we have is our Lord and our obedience to our Lord. And all we do is suffer for the cause of Christ. We're not spiritually advanced like you who are above the fray. What Paul is saying with a sarcastic sledgehammer is that the Corinthians had a theology of victory, but they did not have a theology of suffering. They had a theology of blessing and being blessed, but not a theology of sacrifice. They had a theology of good times, but not a theology of bad times. They had a theology for triumph, but not a theology of servanthood. If any group of Christians, I think, unfortunately, can identify with those Corinthians, it is a lot of North American Christians. Because in essence, like the Corinthians, that, that Paul, uh, the theology that Paul is correcting, the North American church often preaches only half a gospel. I remember watching the number one, televangelist in the world and has been that for years on 60 Minutes. I like this guy. He seems humble. He seems sincere. He tries to preach an uplifting message. He genuinely wants to help people. But I'm concerned about what he says and even more concerned about what he doesn't say. It's not his motives I question. It's his message I question. He rarely speaks of sin or the cross or of repentance or of a holy life or of commitment to the kingdom and things beyond ourselves. He never talks about sacrifice except in the context of self-improvement or getting ahead in material gain or in social gains. He preaches, in other words, a very self-centered gospel. God comes across as the resource who exists just to bless our agendas, but not take us beyond our agendas. That is not even half a gospel. Yet it sells like hotcakes. It's what makes him number one. The basic message is, if you want it, you can have it, and Jesus will make sure you get what you want. The prosperity gospel. The gospel that says if you follow Jesus Christ, you will be healthy and wealthy and happy all the time, that message is less than half a gospel let me give you four reasons why what i've just why that kind of gospel is not true first if what is preached isn't true everywhere for every situation for every person then it is not true tell you know try try to tell the that the pros, sell, sell the prosperity gospel to peter who not only was persecuted and imprisoned, he was hung upside down on a cross. Tell him how he would end up healthy and wealthy and happy. Or tell that version of the gospel to Paul, who was beaten with rods, imprisoned, hit with rocks, stoned, and who ended up beheaded. Tell him how well that turned out. Or tell it to John, the apostle who was persecuted, boiled in oil, and exiled to Patmos. We have Americanized the gospel. We preach prosperity when most Christians in this world are poor. We preach ease when many millions of Christians are persecuted. We preach health when millions of Christians are malnourished or ravaged with diseases like cholera from unclean drinking water or malaria from preventable diseases. Have we forgotten that more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all the centuries combined, over 100 million Christians? Did they lack faith? Have we forgotten the hundreds of thousands of Christians who are dead as genocide is taking place in Dafar Sudan? Do they lack faith? Tell most of the world's Christians that they wouldn't be undergoing such uh, suffering if they were as spiritual as we are. Go tell them that Christianity makes life easier. Such thoughts are an insult to Christians around the world whose life has gotten harder because of their faith, not easier, and yet they remain faithful to Christ unto death. The only real places you can pull off the prosperity gospel is in North America, some places in Europe, some places in a few countries in Asia, and Australia where significant wealth already exists. It's simply what doesn't work in the rest of the world. It is not universally true. It does not work all the time for everybody in every situation. And real truth must work all the time for everybody in every situation. A second reason this kind of gospel is wrong is simply because it can be cruel. I remember a woman who, who divorced her physically abusive husband. One year later, she discovered she had cancer. And her pastor visited her with his bad theology. And he told her as she laid in the hospital bed fighting for her life that she had cancer because she had not stayed with her abusive husband. If she had just submitted to him in his headship, she would have been under his umbrella of protection and she would have never got cancer. In essence, he was telling her she had cancer because she had sinned and she was rebellious and she had violated God's will. First, that's biblically untrue. Jesus made it clear that bad things happen to people for a whole variety of reasons. It's unbiblical because Paul himself had to leave sick people behind on certain missionary trips. People he prayed for for a miracle, they didn't get it. Did Paul lack faith? Besides that, it's just cruel. You take a person who's down and then condemn them for being down? It, you know, how, you talk about kicking somebody, you know, when they're in pain and out. Third, we are, you know, I, I, in regards to helping people who are suffering, we're called to encourage people in pain, not condemn them, to walk along by, side by side with them, to pray with them and for them, to help them in practical ways and, and to empathize with them. And we also called to be humble in the face of human suffering because there, but for the grace of God go any of us. When it comes to suffering, we are not called to walk into a hospital room and be stupid and insensitive. That's not the gospel. A third reason this kind of gospel is wrong is because it ignores the reality of a fallen world. You may have noticed lately that something's wrong with this planet. And a lot of people try to ignore it instead of accepting it. Drought, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, disease, death, war, terrorism. There's something in us that tells us it ought not be this way. And you are right. The world is whack. It is not a lack of faith to accept the fallenness of the world. It is a solid biblical doctrine when you accept the fallenness of the world. Scott Peck, in his classic book, The Road Less Traveled, helped millions of people by explaining one simple truth. It's in the first paragraph of of his book, and here's the paragraph. Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It's a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we can transcend this truth. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand it and accept it, then life is no longer so difficult. I hope you find that helpful. We do every person, every Christian, a disservice by teaching them false expectations. What, what is the number one reason people walk away from their faith? Isn't it because they are unprepared when difficulties and bad things happen? when because you know people told sold them a false bill of goods and said look if you follow jesus it's all hunky-dory and then when they are blindsided by suffering they go wait a minute doesn't jesus love me here's the problem jesus didn't teach this stuff as a matter of fact he said if you follow me let me give you a list of what jesus said would happen you will be mocked you will be persecuted You will be led like sheep to the slaughter. You will have to choose at times between father, mother, sister, brother, child. If you follow me, Christ said, you will have enemies you wouldn't have had if you didn't follow me. Times may get harder, not better in this world if you follow me, Jesus said. Jesus said, life is difficult and following me may make it more difficult. Get ready. Get ready. For a fallen world. And fourth, this kind of gospel skips the part about sacrificing everything for Christ. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus didn't come to mildly adjust our old lives. He came to kill our old lives and then resurrect them. Jesus didn't come to slightly tweak our self-centeredness. He came to end it. He's not out to make a greedy person just a little less greedy and a little less guilty. Or an abusive person a little less abusive. You know, suppose a bank teller tells you he's stealing $10,000 a week from his job by, by creative book work. But now he's a Christian and he wants to stop. Would you say, well, look... Uh, Jesus will meet you where you are. Instead of, instead of stealing $10,000 a week, just let's lower it to $5,000 a week. Well, what if a man came to you and said, I beat my wife five times every week, but now I know Christ and I want to change. What would you say if the pastor said to him, listen, you shouldn't beat your wife five times a week. Let's just cut it back to every weekend. Jesus said, come and die to certain things. He didn't say, mildly adjust certain things. Some years ago, Dr. E. Stanley Jones founded a Christian community in India. He called it an ashram. Converts would come to live there and learn about Christ and experience Christian community. One convert who came to the ashram was a Brahmin. The Brahmins are the upper class in India, in the upper caste of Indian society, in Jones's ashram, everyone was expected to help with community chores. Mop the floors, wash the dishes, clean the bathrooms. The former ashram Brahmin came to Dr. Jones and announced he could not do such menial chores because they were beneath him. Dr. Jones told him that in Christ there are no menial tasks, that all good works are sacred. And that we should have no trouble as Christians mopping floors or or cleaning bathhouses. When the Brahmin heard that, he said, Brother Stanley, I am converted, but I'm not that converted. That's the problem with millions of Christians. We're converted, but we're not that converted. What Christ calls us to requires the ultimate in allegiance and in sacrifice. It is comparable to death. It's giving up our lives to Him so He can give His life to us. It's surrendering our will to His. Jesus reminds us that we have something better to do than build our lives around our lives. We are called to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our main agenda should not be uh, what we want solely. Our lives are to be caught up in a kingdom, and a relationship that is greater than our lives. It's like joining the army. When somebody joins the army, you never hear the sergeant say, thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing calisthenics and training. And I just want you to know if there's anything you don't like, you don't have to do it. But besides that, if you join the army, we promise you a long life And further, when it's over, we think you'll be very pleased with the financial package. Now look, people join the army for a lot of reasons. Some for adventure, some to acquire skills, some to get an education. Many join the army to fight for causes greater than themselves. But nobody joins the army to be healthy and wealthy and rich. Wouldn't you agree? When we become Christians, we join the army of God. Because whether we like it or not, we are in a war. We're in a war with powers and principalities. We are in war with the world and evil. Of course, we fight with different weapons. Faith instead of rifles. Truth instead of bullets. Love instead of tanks. Peacemaking instead of planes. Our goals are to save lives. But make no mistake about it. We are in a war. And please hear this. No army can win a war if its troops refuse to sacrifice. No army can function if the troops refuse to obey orders because those orders are hard. No army can win if its troops refuse to put their lives on the line. It's true Jesus loves us and died for us. But it's also true He expects the favor returned. Sacrifice, taking up our cross daily, is central to our calling as Christians. Let us come and die, as Bonhoeffer said. Let us take up our cross, as Jesus said. Die to life as this world promotes it. Die to lesser kingdoms. Philip Yancey talked about Adoniram Judson. He was one of the first missionaries from the United States to become a missionary. And he was the first Christian who brought faith to Burma, as it was called in those days. Hardship stalked his life. When war broke out in England, the Burmese arrested Judson because even though he wasn't British, he was American, he was still light-skinned and English speaking, so he looked and talked like the enemy. Judson was force marched barefoot for eight miles to a prison where each night the guards passed a bamboo pole between his heavily shackled legs and hoisted the lower part of his body high off the ground. Blood rushed to his head, preventing sleep and causing fierce cramps in his shoulders and back. Clouds of mosquitoes feasted on the raw flesh of his feet and legs. This went on for two years, hanging upside down every night. And Judson managed to endure only because his devoted wife brought him food each day and pled with the guards for better treatment. Finally, he was released. But a few months after his release, Judson's wife, weakened by smallpox, died of fever. And shortly after that, their only child, their baby daughter, died too. Judson nearly had a nervous breakdown. He would kneel by his wife's grave for hours Each day, regardless of the weather, he built a one-room hut in the jungle, dug his own grave beside that hut in case it might prove necessary, and worked in solitude on a translation of the Bible in the Burmese language. Only a handful of Burmese people in his life showed an interest in the Christian message. By any earthly standard, he looked like a failure. Yet, he stayed on for 34 years in all. And because of his faithfulness, now more than one million Burmese Christians trace their spiritual roots to Judson. And the dictionary he completed nearly 200 years ago remains the official dictionary of Myanmar, which is what Burma is called now. You see, this only happens when someone lives for something or someone greater than themselves. This was one man and his family suffering and dying for something greater than this world and greater than themselves. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the blessings of following Jesus Christ. There are so many. And I'm not some dispensationalist who says, miracles stopped when the last apostle left this earth. Nor am I a liberal who waters down the supernatural aspects of the gospel. I believe in miracles. I believe the Bible. I believe that Jesus is alive and with us. I believe he sent the Holy Spirit into this world to build his kingdom. I believe in answered prayer. I believe in miracles. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are operational now. I believe God can heal people and still does. You know, and if I got cancer, you know what the first thing I would do if I got cancer? I would get spiritually mature people and get the anointing oil and get them around me and say get busy. Get busy. We're going to pray for a miracle. Cause it could happen. By the way, you know, James says, you have not because you ask not. It never hurts to ask for a miracle. You're not ticking off God, but you may not get a miracle. So what's the next thing you pray for? You pray for God to heal you through natural means, don't you? To work through doctors? Doctors and medicine are God's good and perfect gifts to this world. You pray for God to do that. And if God doesn't heal me of cancer, then I'm going to praise God because I'm going someplace a whole lot better than this world. And I'm going to praise God that he is going to give me the power to be an overcomer even as my body perishes. I'm going to praise him for that. You see, miracles come in different forms, don't they? They? But faith in what I just mentioned doesn't guarantee blissful marriages or fairness in life or kids that will not disappoint us. Both are true. God is good, but the world isn't. God can get us through anything, but the world may guarantee we have to go through everything. As Christians, we are only guaranteed three things. And none of these three things are an easy life or health or wealth. The bottom line is this. Nothing that life throws at us can separate us from the love of God. You hold on to Jesus and I promise Jesus will hold on to you. There is no power, no devil, nothing on the earth and under the earth. There is nothing that can separate us from his love and his destiny for us. The second guarantee that is true in every situation, in every place, is that God can use everything for good. And by good, Scripture means, whether good or bad, God uses anything to make us like Jesus. That all our experiences are used by the Spirit to transform us from glory into glory into His image. There is nothing that life can throw at us that God cannot use to grow us, make us more loving, make us wiser, make us more kind, make us more spiritually powerful. You can do that even as your body's dying. And the third guarantee we have is that one day everything we go through in this world, even rejection, even hurt, even pain, even injustice, every attack, it will be worth it. We are not to put all our eggs in this world's basket. I told them in the first service, you you put all your eggs in this world's basket, that's like being a quarterback behind a Penn State offensive line. You don't want to do that. (laughs) Also, I mean, the closest thing to a sure bet in this world is an Alabama football team, but even they let you down sometimes. So, anyway, I'd like to thank you for not booing like they did in the first service. So. <laughs> Randy Day is the, was the General Secretary of Global Ministries for the United Methodist Church. He and his wife adopted a little boy from another country, and they all fell in love with each other. When Randy Day traveled, he always called home from where he was. Once, just after he crossed the international date line, he called his son and said, Son, it's dark where you are right now, but where I am, it's bright, it's light. In fact, where I am is tomorrow. Some months later, Randy had to leave home again, and he said to his family, I'll call you when I get to where I'm going. And his son said, Dad, call me from tomorrow. May we, you know, we, we may be in the dark now on a lot of issues. On a lot of places in this world, the night looks like it is winning, but there is a day coming where it is bright. There is a day coming where the darkness flees And there is no disease or death or pain or sin or devil. There is a day coming where the brightness will not be the S-U-N. It will be the S-O-N. And all the light of heaven and eternity will beam from Him. We won't need a sun anymore. The light is Jesus Christ Himself. There's a day coming. And we are to live for that day. Why? Because we are children of tomorrow. We are children of a coming kingdom. Today, never gets the final word. Because if today gets the final word, that means arthritis gets the final word. It means heart disease gets the final word. It means racism gets the final word. It means injustice gets the final word. It means poverty gets the final word. It means war gets the final word. It means death gets the final word. Because no matter how bad today it gets, we as Christians know tomorrow is coming, and we are children of tomorrow, Jesus died to bring us that tomorrow, so we live in the light of that day. That is why that's the bottom line of all bottom lines for us. Because there are too many Christians who have died, too many Christians that have been martyred, too many Christians that have been persecuted, too many Christians that have lost family. And friends, there's too many Christians who have endured unspeakable pain and suffering, like Judson. And if this world is all they had, for some Christians, that's not worth it. There is a reason. Judson. There's a reason Judson's life was not lived in vain. Or because what the apostles went through was not lived in vain. Or the death of millions of Christians was not lived in vain. We are called to help bring in a new kingdom that will not fail and is ruled by love. We are called to fight for that kingdom. That is why Paul could suffer what he suffered, sacrificed what he sacrificed. Why could Paul endure persecution for the kingdom of God? Because one day he knew he would be a prince and a ruler in the kingdom of God, and it would be all worth it. Why could Paul endure homelessness for the kingdom? Because Christ he knew was preparing a special mansion just for him, tailor-made to his personality, tailor-made to the way God made him, and that living in that mansion for eternity was worth being homeless now. Why could Paul endure poverty in this world? Because he knew one day he would inherit the wealth of the next world. He knew, and he did, as Jesus said, stored up treasures in heaven, indescribable wealth. Why could Paul allow himself to be considered scum in this place? Because he would reign with Christ in a kingdom without end. Why could Paul why didn't it eat him up that he was considered garbage here? Because he knew he was going to be cherished there. And if what Jesus thinks of you is far more important than what emperors and generals and presidents think of you. So let us come and live for the the other world. though. And I quote Paul on this, because it's not in this passage of Scripture, but I think it sums his attitude up. He says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outshines whatever we went through. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. There is a new world coming. Let us live for it. Let us sacrifice for it. Let's overcome in the light of it by the power of the Spirit. We are children of tomorrow. And no matter what happens in this world, when we get to tomorrow, it will be worth everything we ever had to endure for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I'd like the worship team to come as we're praying. And Lord Jesus, I pray in your name. I pray in your name that we live a balanced biblical Christian life. Lord, help us to expect good things from your hand, but help us to expect that evil will come after us. Help us to, Lord, know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. But help us to know we are in a war and powers and principalities are coming after us. And we are not exempt. In fact, sometimes following you puts us right in the crosshairs. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be biblical and live life like you intend us to live it. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like the.